I think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. The record for the longest nonstop flight by any animal has been shattered last month by a bar-tailed godwit that goes by the name of B6. B6 was banded this summer in Alaska as a chick and left Kuskokwim Delta on October 13th. It did not touch the ground again until arriving in Anson's Bay in Northeast Tasmania, Australia on October 24th. A grand total of 8,425 miles, 13 and a half thousand kilometers for our metric friends over the course of 11 days. The previous record, was held by another bar-tailed godwit with the tag 4BBRW, a good old 4BBRW, who took the Alaska to New Zealand route that was a comparatively pathetic 8,109 miles. Sorry, 4BBRW records are made to be broken. Every great athlete eventually sees their record shattered by some young up-and-comer. Barry Bonds passed Hank Aaron's home run total. Christine Sinclair passed Abby Wambach's record for most international goals. LeBron will soon pass Kareem's NBA scoring record. So did B6 pass for BBRW. feel like I should point out bar-tailed godwits don't glide. They don't swim. They don't stop. This is a non-stop powered flight caddy corner across Earth's largest ocean. I suppose we'll have to get a blood sample to make sure B6 wasn't doping. But I always knew B6 had it in them. They do things the right way. Real gym rat. Grinder. Always gives 110%. First one on the mud flat and last one out. You know how it goes. The record, though, I doubt it will last long. There's probably a godwit that hasn't even been hatched yet that will challenge it next summer. This record will only stand as long as it takes to put some more trackers on young bar-tailed godwits. They, they, they fly a long way. Birds can do amazing things. That's something of a theme this week. Maybe it's a theme all the time. On the show, though, increasing wildfires in the American West and elsewhere pose threats, both known and unknown to birds. Solving some of those mysteries is the work of my guest this week, Dr. Olivia Sanderfoot of UCLA, whose work on birds and smoke has never been more timely. She joins me after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the beginning of November 2022. Fall is the traditional time for vagrant flycatchers across the east of the continent, and we have seen a great many tyrannids of many species in the last few weeks all over the eastern two-thirds of North America. New Jersey's first record of tropical kingbird, a long-awaited and somewhat expected discovery, was found in Cape May this week. This is New Jersey's second state first in as many weeks. Both were flycatchers. We talked about Virginia's first record of this species a couple weeks ago, but New Jersey and Virginia have hardly been the only places in on the fun. Delaware had what is most likely a tropical kingbird as well. It's second for the state. That was this week. New York's third 
Tropical Kingbird was seen in Queens. Ontario had one just barely on the Canadian side of the border in Windsor, uh, so close that birders in Michigan with a scope might have seen it. So great time of year to find tropical kingbirds along the eastern seaboard. Ash-throated flycatchers are starting to pop up as well. One in Nova Scotia is that province's 10th. The gray kingbird was seen in Rhode Island. It was its second. A Cassin's kingbird was also in Massachusetts for those who want the western kingbird sweep. You can get them all at least somewhere in the east now. Other notable birds showing up in bunches include two recent records of brambling. This wandering Asian finch was seen at southeast Farallon Island in California and also at Prowers County, Colorado. There are almost certainly more out there, so keep an eye on your feeders. Those are the highlights for the week. For the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. A warmer and drier world means, unfortunately, a world in which wildfire becomes a greater risk. We know all too well the risk these fires pose to wild places, but there is surprisingly little we know about the risk to wildlife. That is the work of Dr. Olivia Sanderfoot, a researcher at UCLA, looking at the impacts of wildfire smoke on wild birds and trying to answer a few of these increasingly relevant questions. Olivia, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate your interest in our research. Absolutely. Um, so th- there's there's a lot I don't know about this issue. So we'll kind of we'll start with the basics. Um, what do birds do in a wildfire? Uh, that's a really good question. And honestly, one we don't have great data on. Uh, so we know a lot about how birds respond to the post-fire landscape. Right. So let's say there's a bird living in a habitat and a fire comes through. We might not know exactly how that bird responds in the moment to fire, but we do have a sense for how some species either return or don't return to that place after the fire has stopped. Uh, And what I'm hoping to do in my research is really dig into the question about what birds are doing when fires are burning. Um, Anecdotal evidence suggests that birds um, have a a fight or flight response. Uh, They'll either hang. Literally a fight fight or flight response. Well, maybe (laughs) not fight, but definitely flight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They're either going to to flee the area and and attempt to escape the the immediate risk that fire poses, or they're going to hunker down and wait it out. Um, And uh, the question is, is which birds employ which strategies and how successful are they? And um, are those strategies going to remain successful as we see fires increase in intensity and severity. I imagine there could be some sense of where birds are going when the fire is going by looking at the post-fire landscape, because you can see, I guess, sort of, you know, how quickly they return. And so I guess you would kind of get some clues as to how far they might have gone. You can you can stop me if I'm completely off base here, but... <laughs> Uh, no, I, those are all great insights. And um, I think that there is the potential to consider the timeline with which species mm-hmm. return to to landscapes that have been impacted by fire to get a better sense for how far they have they have had to travel to escape the immediate risks that fire that fire poses. Um, but we really don't know in real time how birds are responding to fire. Um, and there is even uh, sort of an absence of knowledge of, of 
the risk that fire poses yeah. in terms of mortality impacts as well um, to birds and other wildlife. Um, there's a recent paper that came out sort of summarizing all of the the known fate studies mm-hmm. where we have GPS trackers out on animals. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, if that's possible way yeah, to solve yeah. this question, but I, I have no idea. Yeah. No, you're, so I actually printed it. Because, oh, wow. Okay. Look at you. You're very Because I, I, I never remember the exact, um, the exact number. Um, okay. So there's this really interesting paper that came out last summer. It's mm-hmm. titled Animal Mortality During Fire. Um, and it's published in Global Change Biology. Um, the lead author is, is Chris Jolly. Uh, and in this paper, um, folks look at the studies of animal mortality during fire, and they look at um, survival in planned or low severity fires, as well as a few of the larger fires that we're seeing sure, take place yeah, in the landscape. And they suggest that a low proportion of animals, just 3% um, in these studies of, of tagged animals, were actually killed during fire. But they also point out that there are only 31 studies that have been doing this. So that's not a lot of information to work from. No, certainly not. And and, and I I guess I hadn't made the connection, but I should have. I live in the Southeast. I I live in a place where planned fires are a regular occurrence and Mm -hmm. some of our kind of open pine land. um, And some birds actually require this this fire regime Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that has, you know, been kind of separated from the natural the natural causes of fire and so that the wildlife folks have to come out and do these fires. And, but these are all like very low, mm-hmm. like intentionally very low intensity mm-hmm. fires. And it seemed like the birds, like, I don't know, bobwhite quail, no, Northern bobwhite would be able to like walk <laughs> ahead of it. It's not like it's a, it's a real threat to their population, but like, that's not the case in, in other places in the American West in particular. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly I, I would argue that the low severity burns that um, are part of the natural fire regime of landscapes that are beloved across the United sure, States yeah. are far less of a risk to birds oh, and other sure. wildlife so. yeah. than the megafires that we're seeing take place right. these days, um, both in terms of exposure to extreme heat and exposure to extreme smoke. Low severity fires yeah. move more slowly. They generate less heat and they generate less smoke. Far so less in general, yeah, they're, seen it. Yeah, yeah. they're not as risky. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of birders and sort of general naturalists are, are kind of generally aware of the impact of these increasingly intense wildfires in the landscape. You're talking about these megafires. Mm-hmm. on on plant life um mm-hmm. but how mm-hmm. how much is known about their impact on on just animals just generally not just birds but but mammals and and amphibians and whatever might be living in those organ in those in those areas i am most familiar with the the literature on birds mm-hmm. um but in general, I would say we have a lot more to learn about how megafires are impacting habitat and how that will ultimately influence our bird populations. For example, um, a recent study by one of my colleagues and friends, Andrew Stillman, has found uh, that blackback woodpeckers, which are sort of an iconic fire specialist species, Mm -hmm. um, actually require a mixture of burned and unburned places. The juveniles need more canopy cover in order to protect themselves from predators, while the adults require burned trees for cavities and, and tend to forage more through these burned landscapes. So um, even species that are definitely fire dependent need that juxtaposition, that that mixture of burned and unburned places to thrive. Yeah. And that's not the case in these megafires. It just no. like, torches everything. 
Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And how much of the, the lack of information about these sort of fires is due to the fact that these these increasingly intense fires that we're seeing in the last few decades are, you know, there's there's no equivalent to them in the historical record. Or are there? Like, is there anything that you can look back on um, mm-hmm. in the, you know, 100 years ago when people started keeping track of it, even further back when indigenous people might have had this sort of knowledge about these these fires on the landscape? Like, is there any knowledge that you can look back on and compare it to? Or is it all just sort of this brand new science that you're doing? Prior to European colonization, we certainly saw large fires on Mm -hmm. the landscape. And the size of the fires is less of an issue than how intense Mm -hmm. and severe the fires are. So we have some understanding of what historic fires might have looked like. And we know that they may have been just as big, if not bigger than the Mm. fires that we see taking place today, but we're more concerned about how hot these Mm -hmm. fires burn, how far they can stretch up the canopy, um, and how fast they move and how much heat and smoke is generated um, from these large, fast-moving fires that, like you said, just torch everything. Yeah, I Um, imagine they're more frequent now, too. and They are definitely more frequent. And we're seeing the fire season extend, which from um, like for for birders, I I think folks have have probably been thinking a lot about this. If if we see fires earlier in the season, Mm -hmm. now there's greater overlap between when fires are taking place and when birds are breeding. And if we're seeing fires take place later in the season, then there's more overlap between fall migration and fires. Hmm. Um, So certainly birds are going to need to respond to shifts in the wildfire regime. Um, In terms of like whether or not this is brand new science and how much further we have to go. Um, I'm tackling just a really tiny piece of this this sure. problem, um, which is all about smoke and how birds mm-hmm. are responding to smoke exposure. Um, and there are awesome researchers all across the country that are really tackling this issue of, okay, we're seeing these fires um, more frequently. They're more intense. They're burning more of these landscapes. What does that mean for habitat availability and species distributions? Mm-hmm. Um, they're thinking less about how um, animals and such as birds are responding in real time and more about um, how the landscape is shifting and what mm-hmm. that means for bird populations. Are birds particularly susceptible to smoke in a way that other wildlife might not be? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I uh, are you ready to geek out about yes, some please. avian Let's physiology with me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so bring it on. <laughs> birds uh, are incredibly efficient at respiration. They are the most uh, efficient at respiration across all vertebrates in the animal kingdom. And the reason for this is because the structure of the avian respiratory system is totally different from the mammalian respiratory yeah, I system. I remember when I first learned this and it was yeah. it's mind-blowing. Wild. <laughs> it's wild. Uh, so when we breathe, we take a deep breath and our lungs fill with air. And uh, when we exhale, we expel uh air that has already been processed in our lungs. So the purpose of respiration, just to back up for a sec, is gas exchange. We want Mm -hmm. to supply our body with oxygen and we want to get rid of carbon dioxide, which is a waste product of metabolic activity. And when we do this, we do this by um, expanding our lungs and pulling in fresh air. And then when we contract our lungs, we push out stale air. We're just exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide in and out, in and out. And this is not at all how birds breathe. Uh, So birds 
um, have rigid lungs. So they don't expand and contract. They sit in the middle of their um, chest cavity and they're surrounded by a system of air sacs. And these air sacs allow birds to constantly push fresh oxygenated air into their lungs, which basically maintains this constant flow of oxygenated air across the gas exchange tissues and just makes it so much more efficient than what we're doing where there's a lot of dead air in our lungs mm-hmm. that's never we never actually pull the oxygen out of. So all this really means is that birds, for every unit of volume of air they inhale, they're able to get way more oxygen out of it than we are. Um, and I can give you even more details if you want, but that's like the main pitch. They breathe unidirectionally. And that means that they're going to be more vulnerable to um, gases and particles in the air. And this is particularly true during the flight when their ventilation rates are very, very high. So they're also just like processing a huge amount of air. Hmm. Yeah. So I imagine like this smoke particles or whatever is in the air, the chemicals, all the stuff that's in air that makes up what we think of as smoke, Mm -hmm. um, it gets in there. And anything that impacts that efficiency is going to significantly impact the bird's ability to live, I guess, if we're even in a very broad sense, that's, that's, yeah, it makes, it makes intuitive sense that, that the smoke would be a problem for these birds that are moving around. Yeah. So smoke is a, is a mixture of air pollutants, um, including gases, toxic gases, um, as well as particles. And when I think of particles, I'm thinking of suspended solid and liquid material, um, stuff that's very fine that remains suspended in the air. And when we think about uh, smoke impacts on public health, we tend to focus on one specific pollutant that's used as a marker for wildfire smoke, um, which is fine particulate matter. And Mm -hmm. that refers to particles. So again, solid and liquids um, that are very fine, smaller than 2.5 microns in aerodynamic diameter, which is thinner than the length of a human hair. So really, really tiny stuff. Um, And that's suspended in the air. And when we breathe that in, it becomes deeply embedded in our respiratory system and it, and it causes chemical reactions with our lungs, which lead to damage. And if that's happening to us, it's inevitably happening to birds too. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, human health in places where there's air pollution, mm-hmm. greater risk of things like asthma or, mm-hmm. or all sorts of respiratory illnesses. To think that that might be happening in birds is pretty sobering. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's a recent study that just came out that showed that wildfire smoke is actually eroding air quality gains across the United States. So since the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970, we've made huge advancements as a nation in improving the quality of the air we breathe. It's much safer to step outside and take a deep breath than mm-hmm. it was several decades ago. Um, and unfortunately, because we're seeing an increase in the frequency, intensity, and severity of fires, we're seeing these mega fires take place in the landscape. And um, that's resulting in an incredible increase in smoke pollution, we're actually making less progress than we used to on cleaning up our Mm. air. And in some places, air quality is worsening. And that will have profound implications for our human communities. And I argue that that also has an important um, set of consequences for wildlife that's worth examining. Yeah. Oh, how could I not? Yeah. Are Are there species or families of birds that are more harmed than others in these sort of situations? That's a great question. So we have very little information right now on how wildfire smoke impacts birds, much less the ability to compare and contrast impacts across taxa. But I would think my hypothesis is that the smallest birds, such as hummingbirds, have highest metabolic rates 
yeah, um, yeah. would be most heavily impacted. For sure. I, I guess that's one of the one of the big questions that you want want to mm-hmm. answer, obviously. Like what, what are some of the other, you know, large scale questions that you want uh, to answer? And consequently, what do you think that people would need to do or people or uh, environmental yeah. groups or, or government agencies or whatever who are interested in solving some of these problems, potentially? You know, what would they need to do? Yeah. So uh, I understand one... you may not have a answer to the second part of that question <laughs> yet, but yeah. All right. So one big question in ornithology um, and avian conservation would be vulnerability and yeah. which species are most at risk due to wildfire smoke. And that's going to come down to a number of factors. One, size. How does a bird's size how does their corresponding metabolic rate make them more or less vulnerable to the um, pollutants in the air that they breathe, mm-hmm. including wildfire smoke? Two, how do their life history characteristics mitigate smoke exposure? Are birds that use different components of habitat somehow protected from smoke mm-hmm. more than others? Are some birds able to more effectively escape or avoid the immediate threats of of extreme heat and smoke? Um, How does the timing of wildfires intersect with that? Are birds that breed later into the summer or or, um, raise multiple broods Mm -hmm. more likely to stay when it's it's hot and smoky because they want to be there for their young versus those species that have maybe already finished breeding for the year and don't feel as tied to their territory? Um, And then three, how do patterns of shifts in wildfire regimes intersect with species distributions and how does that confer differences in vulnerability? Sure. You know, birds' ranges are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. They're very dynamic. You have mm-hmm. birds that are potentially moving into uh, mm-hmm. higher wildfire areas, wild, wildfire threat areas, and birds that are potentially moving out of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot. There's a lot There's there. a lot to dig into. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and in, in terms of your question about like, what we would need to do to answer them, we can tackle this question on a lot of different levels. I mean, mm-hmm. we have to approach this just like we would other environmental um, concerns for our feathered friends. So we need to conduct experiments in laboratories to better understand how birds are are impacted by smoke exposure in a controlled setting. Um, And then we need to scale that up and study birds in the wild, knowing that Mm -hmm. birds in the wild act and behave and respond very differently than birds in captivity. And we can only do so much to simulate real air quality conditions in a laboratory environment. Um, And then we can really think about um, landscape level responses. And so uh, the goal of my postdoc is to start picking out some meaningful questions that would help us advance this knowledge and set the stage for what will need to be a collection of studies at different levels of ecology to really piece together this story of Mm -hmm. of what smoke means for birds. Yeah. So how do you do this work? Like, how are you (laughs) getting the, this data that you need? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I imagine collecting data in the middle of a mega fire is (laughs) difficult. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Uh, so most of my work is based in quantitative ecology. So I rely on a lot of big data sets mm-hmm. that birders, just like our listeners, um, contribute to. And that data is incredibly valuable because we have large um, uh large-scale data sets. We have data sets that stretch back for several decades. We have data sets that cover the continental U.S. and beyond. And that allows us to really think about how smoke as a 
is a local, regional, and global issue maybe affecting birds at these different spatial and temporal scales. Um, and so my goal is to really think about patterns in bird observations in those community science data sets mm-hmm. and how those are related to estimates of smoke exposure. Hmm. Uh, so folks who are listening can help us out by contributing yeah. to programs such as eBird, um, Project Feeder Watch, Christmas Bird Count, Breeding Bird Safety. All of those community science programs are excellent candidates to help us answer this question because by having lots of data, we'll have built-in controls and be able to study birds right. when it's smoky and when it's not. And I think the biggest question is, would we have enough data from those programs when it is smoky? Yeah. Um, because folks often decide not to go birding when it's smoky. Understandably. <laughs> Absolutely. That's completely understandable. Um, and what I think is fascinating is that our, our work so far suggests that a lot of people continue to go birding when it is smoky. Wow. Um, yeah. I showed uh, as part of my dissertation that between 2015 and 2018, during the fire seasons in Washington mm-hmm. State, the number of eBird checklists submitted did not vary with smoke, at least huh. as it was measured with with fine particulate matter, which again is a common huh. marker of smoke pollution. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, I would think that given the profound difference between what smoke looked like in the Western U.S. in those years and, for example, 2020, that that might not hold true in other years. 2020 was a terrible year for fires. We had mm-hmm. record-breaking fires, yeah. record-breaking smoke events. There were days when the entire Western U.S. was blanketed in smoke. Yeah, I remember those pictures. Yeah. Yeah. I would think that during those events, folks may not be as inclined to go birding. Um, but if there are folks listening who think, you know, for 10 minutes at a time, I would be willing mm-hmm. to go out and survey birds. That would be a very meaningful contribution to these community science data sets and help us dig into this. Um, even 10 minutes makes um, an excellent survey. And in mm. fact, the more structured we can make our eBird checklist, the more valuable they are. So, for example, stationary counts tend to be more valuable than traveling counts for the kinds of analyses that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And even a 10-minute stationary point count um, in, a, in a smoky environment can help me learn more about what birds were seeing and what, what birds were not. Oh. Um, and you can keep yourself safe by wearing an N95. And many of us have those because of yeah. our, yeah. Plenty yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, believe it or not, that's actually going to do a lot to reduce your risk um, from respiratory exposure to smoke. Um, so if that's something you'd be willing to do, that would be very helpful. You could also look at birds out your window or contribute to Project Feeder Watch, which doesn't mm-hmm. require you to go outside. Um, but those observations on smoky days would be very valuable to me. Um, mm. But I would never ask somebody to sacrifice <laughs> their health to go out and collect data. So definitely like keep it short, wear your mask, and never do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. Obviously, your work is focused on the Western, in Western North America, because mm-hmm. that, that's where you are. But um, are, the find, are the things that you are finding, are they relevant to other places that have seen uh, significant wildfires, megafires mm-hmm. in the last you know, decade or so? I'm thinking in particular of Australia, yeah. for instance, uh, Central Asia has seen a bunch of uh, megafires in, in recent yeah. years. Um, are, are the findings that you are finding in, in Western North America relevant to those places as well? Yes, I would say so. I mm-hmm. think that the findings we will have soon um, for the Western U.S. are going to be applicable globally. Mm-hmm. And I say that because birds share this vulnerability to smoke because they have a shared 
respiratory system. And smoke from fire does vary a bit in terms of its chemical makeup, depending on what's burning. But in general, the consequences of smoke are also yeah. shared um, because it is it is impacting birds in a similar way. Um, I would say the the biggest difference would be um, if we're comparing fire in a place that's highly developed, there's going to be a lot mm, more mm-hmm. toxins in the smoke than there would be if um, only vegetation is burning. Because you can imagine as soon as you're starting to burn metal and plastic and some of the components of a built environment, that smoke is particularly nasty. Um, But I think our findings about the general impacts of smoke on birds will will certainly apply more broadly. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely don't want to give folks the impression that fires are universally bad for birds. That's something Mm -hmm. that I I definitely want to push back on. And I appreciate your, your earlier comments about how fire is an important natural disturbance that has shaped ecosystems for thousands of years. And birds have adapted to live alongside fire forever, literally forever. For as long as birds have been on planet Earth, fires have occurred and birds do have, therefore, adaptations. And some um, have even learned to thrive in burned places. What concerns me right now is that these megafires are very different from what birds have evolved alongside for millennia. And the smoke events that we're seeing are absurd and not something that I would expect any animal, human or not, to be able to deal with without some extra help. And so I would really love to know how birds are affected by smoke as individuals, as species, as populations, and so that we can start to carve out some meaningful conservation opportunities to give them the best chance of thriving in a hotter, smokier world. Yeah. Are there any birds that show an ability to potentially predict Mm. these sort of fire events? Like, I'm sure they're able to tell, you know, birds move, especially birds in the Western, in Western North America are sort of attuned to these sort of wide changes in in season to season weather, year to year weather events. Mm -hmm. So that's why we, part of the reason why we see so many Western birds in the East Mm -hmm. um, when in areas of high drought or whatever. Um, are they able to sort of, to some extent, you know, predict that the fire is is coming, mm. is going to be a particularly dangerous one or a bad one, and the bird needs to, like, vamoose before it gets, it gets too bad? Or is it all sort of, I guess there's too little to know for that. There, I think there's too little to know mm-hmm. for that. But I think that's a fascinating question and one we can certainly dig into. And I'm just reminded of this really interesting study. I'm trying to remember the details of it. There's Mm -hmm. a reptile that was studied in captivity and it was exposed to smoke and behavioral responses were examined. And the individuals that had been captured from fire-prone landscapes knew that that smoke indicated that they needed to be more active, that they needed to engage in a flight response. And those that were not, um, did not respond in that way. Wow. And so, and yeah, I'm going to find it. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I'm reminded because there was one. this really cool study that came out, uh, mm-hmm. and I talked to the the researcher on it um, a few years ago on the podcast about um, viries and how they're sort of mm-hmm. able to predict mm-hmm. the hurricane mm-hmm. season yeah. in a way that is, you know, more accurate than humans who are looking at this all this meteorological data. And there's no way to know exactly what 
they're doing to mm-hmm. to be able to, what what criteria they are somehow subconsciously evaluating that causes them to leave early if they feel like it's going to be a, a particularly active uh, tropical storm season. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they can or they do mm-hmm. is really wild. Yeah, um, that is which wild. suggests that birds are able to birds or organisms are able to respond to stimuli that we wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. expect or know or predict. Mm-hmm. Um, in ways, you know, to respond to these sort of large natural, quote unquote, mm-hmm. natural disasters, not really natural disasters, mm-hmm. the things that the birds been dealing with for millennia, uh, to Absolutely. some extent. And I, I think it also shows that birds are able to be so in tune with their environment and they yeah. have this intelligence about the world around them that we cannot even comprehend or yeah. relate to. It's just a fundamentally different way of being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's just fascinating. I think it's really hard to look at a bird and know what its experience in the world right. is like. They see differently. They hear yeah. differently. They can be in tune to the stars and uh, electromagnetic fields mm-hmm. and they can predict the weather. And like, wouldn't it be cool if you could walk around and just like yeah. know where you are and where you needed to go and what the winds held yeah. for, for you. Forget a sixth sense. You're talking like eighth, ninth, yeah. tenth sense. It's <laughs> yeah. wild. They, I will never stop being amazed by birds. Yeah. Uh, so this study is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were lizards. Um, they exhibited a variety of escape behaviors when exposed to smoke, such as running and scratching at their terrariums. So we've got mm-hmm. a bunch of reptiles in captivity, specifically lizards. They're hanging out in the terrariums. They're exposed to smoke. And a bunch of them went, uh, this is not cool. Like, this is this is not a good situation. I need to, to engage in some escape behaviors now. <laughs> um, but what was fascinating is that they were more likely to increase their activity in response to smoke if they had been captured in habitats prone to fire. Hmm. But regardless of their individual experience with fire, so they might not have ever seen a fire, but just having been captured in a place prone to fire they were more likely to react to smoke than yeah. individuals that had been captured in places that weren't prone to fire, which suggests some innate knowledge of what smoke could be. So to answer right. your question, I do think it is very possible that there are birds that have adapted an innate response to smoke. They know that it signals fire, for example, and they know that that means they need to leave. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we have nearly enough information to know which species sure. would be capable of doing that and how beneficial that response would be in the face of megafires. Exactly. There is another really yeah. interesting behavioral response to smoke. There's one study that shows that um, smoke from from fires, in this context, it was from a prescribed burn, recruits raptors. Yeah, um, yeah, I believe. Yeah. I, totally, I, I think there's yeah, there's a lot of um, you know stories. Um, both from researchers that have actually looked at them and also from, you know, various uh, indigenous cultures about mm-hmm. raptors being responsive to fires in ways that well, it yeah. totally makes sense. Not only do mm-hmm. they get the boost and the the heat that co- it makes it easier to fly around, but all, everything's fleeing and mm-hmm. it's just easy mm-hmm. pickings. Well, it's of course, lunch. and you know, the, the famous story about the, I think it's the black kites in mm-hmm. Australia that start the fires just so they mm-hmm. can respond to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Birds mm-hmm. and fire. There's a lot there. There's a lot mm-hmm. there. there <laughs> As you know. Dr. Olivia Sanderfoot is at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her work involves the effects of smoke on birds. It is fascinating stuff, as you have just heard. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Uh, This was a really interesting discussion. 
Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being on the air. And if your listeners have any questions, feel free to have them reach out. I always love to hear stories from birders, especially in the context of fire and smoke. Absolutely. We'll put the we'll put your uh, your website in the in the show notes there so people can find it. Sounds great. Thank you so much. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. We are a membership organization, and there are many benefits to joining. Not only our magazines, discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us, but the feeling you're contributing to a bigger and better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. And I feel like we're close enough to the end of the year that I can note that ABA membership makes a great holiday gift, too. You can get all the information you need about that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Jeff Bybee of Rainbow Lake, New York, Sean Wadups of Edinburgh, Scotland, Matthew Bruce of Louisville, Nebraska, and Claudia Oliver of Winchester, Virginia. All of them recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much. It really is great to see you all supporting this podcast and the organization. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who once saw a big flock of herring gulls flying through a smokestacks of industrial New Jersey, a phenomenon she calls smokestacles. Technical production is by John Lowry, who recalls a time when he experienced a prescribed burn in Florida and noted that at the time he got smoke in his ibis. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who refers to sea watches during wildfire season as smoke and mirrors. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. This is a freebie for Dr. Sanderfoot. If her research ever captures the public imagination such that she is asked to write a book about the effects of wildfire smoke on migratory birds, may I suggest the name Smoke on the Warbler? Questions, comments, come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next week. <laughs>